politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. A quick note before we begin this uh, week's episode, we're going to be talking about misinformation and disinformation as it relates to the current crisis in Israel and Gaza. So if that's something you don't want to hear about, this would be a good episode to skip. How much misinformation do you think is actually being spread based on what's happening in the Middle East right now? Far too much. I, I don't know. And part of that is that I don't want to know. So my media intake has been extremely limited to news sources that I believe have good news standards. Shouldn't you want to know? Shouldn't people want to know? Which is why I read news sources with good news standards. I don't look at social media because it's not a good place to get the news. No, there's some really horrific stuff. And the situation is already bad enough. It does not need any embellishment. This is a real tough one. I guess the best way to deal with it is just, let's just start the show. Welcome to What the Hack, a show about hackers, scammers, and the people that go after them. Today, we're talking with Media Matters CEO, Angelo Carasone. He's back to discuss the current state of misinformation and disinformation in the wake of the new war in the Middle East. I'm Adam Levin. I'm Bo Friedlander. And I'm Travis Taylor. Angelo Corazon, thank you so much for coming back. You're the CEO of Media Matters. Can you explain to our audience what Media Matters does we are a media watchdog organization. It's different than just a fact-checking group. We don't just go out there and constantly fact-check things. What we're really looking for and trying to grapple with is the larger problem of misinformation in the news media because it moves around so quickly. I, I remember Media Matters really taking a hard, very close look at venues like Fox News back in the day. Are you still looking at, at public-facing media that's televised and on radio? When I think about our work, it's sort of like in three buckets. One is just the research itself, the monitoring, the research. The second one is the rapid response work. And that's sort of the day-to-day -day trench warfare. Misleading and offensive. That is how the Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger described the presentation of footage from the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol on Fox last night. You know, there are 75 million people that voted for President Trump and they're confused, they're heartbroken that their candidate didn't win and they don't want to be forgotten. Why does the left struggle so much with accepting defeat? Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican from Kentucky, sided with the police chiefs. It was a mistake for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at Capitol thinks. We're sort of in this incredible period of transition where the right-wing media, which when it functions as an echo chamber, can saturate the landscape with false narratives, with misinformation, project power. It doesn't have a conductor right now. So 
we have a much more expansive view on on how information and misinformation moves to the landscape. But certainly, we you know we do mainstream media as well when they're when they're messing up. You know, we're, we're right out of the gate to show when they're either enabling misinformation or you know, promoting campaigns or not talking about stuff they should in order to get them to shift it back. So, Angela, question now is: If Fox was the center of gravity, yes. what is the center of gravity now, or is there one? There's not. They're they're jockeying for what will be the center of gravity. For a while, Tucker was stepping into that role. And when he got fired from Fox, he'll never, ever be able to be that conductor for the chorus. Who's the uh, contender to be the next uh, center of gravity here? I don't think there will be a new center of gravity. Um, so the big players are Ben Shapiro. You know, as I've said and you've said, there's no such thing as my truth, right? right? There's your opinion and then there's the truth. He has a huge audience, a ton of resources. and. You know, he does, he's not typically a vanguard, but his audience is disproportionately young. And I think that's important to think about. You know, one of the effects of talk radio that, that sort of gets lost is that it wasn't just that it had a very large audience. It's that people grew up with it over decades. So they didn't just hear that, that they built a model of how they share information. You know, so for people like Ben Shapiro, whose audience is disproportionately young, um, that has a very long tail. Like we will see the effects of this for years. And his audience is only growing. He's right at the beginning. Um, so I would say he's right at the top. Elon Musk is going to have a similarly seismic role, potentially, uh, it seems to be the case, uh, in a way that Roger Ailes and, and Rupert Murdoch did. You know, They saw themselves at Fox as sort of a counterbalance to the rest of the news media. You know, that, that, you know, that whole idea about fair and balanced was a little bit tongue-in-cheek. They were balancing out what they saw as as the rest of the news media that they, they thought was liberal, Musk sees himself as a balance to the rest of the social media platforms. He sees them as too reflexively liberal and that he wants Twitter to be a space sort of counter that contrasts that. So he's certainly a player in that sense. I think the other one is Trump. There are very few people that can, that can create a lot of kinetic energy. Uh, and he is one of them. And right now he's harnessing QAnon. Uh, he's building power on the fringes and, and he's increasingly harnessing that uh, that resource. Is Truth Social a thing? I mean, no, it doesn't seem to be. Is, do you think he's going to be more present on X? I, I, I don't think so. His content from, from Truth Social gets filtered over into the pro-Trump universe that is increasingly cross-pollinating on Twitter. So Truth Social really is just a, a distribution place for Trump messaging, and it gets picked up by other media. Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned these, these, different, this, these different polarities within the conservative side of things. This multipolarity that I think uh, was, was discussed, I think, well in an op-ed in the New York Times a couple weeks ago. I think is not just on the conservative side of things. I mean, really what's interesting here is the way left and right are engaging in this kind of multipolarity where relativity of truth becomes becomes extremely confusing. And that brings yes. us to our topic today, yeah. which is, you know, the way that the news and social media is handling and when I say handling, that means people. That's that's users are handling the, the news coming out of the Middle East. And I have to ask, my first question is, are you tracking that? We are. And what are you finding? So what are you finding coming from the Middle East right now? Is, there, is, is it the stuff that you're usually finding? I'll start by saying that the field of vision is a lot more narrow. 
And that matters when you're thinking about misinformation, disinformation in particular, because when you're trying to assess field disinformation, what you're really looking for are some intentionality behind it, patterns, and how big the campaign is. Is it just one person that is vigorously trying to make, you know, spread a false narrative so they selectively edit a video and they post it to a social platform because it's going to get a lot of traction? That's bad. But that's not a coordinated campaign, right? That's one person doing something bad. You need a wide field of vision to get a sense of a coordinated campaign because that will tell you how, how bad it's going to get. And that's what I care about. But Angelo, you know, there's a lot of ways of defining a coordinated sure. campaign. That's now, right. If there is a prevailing prejudice in the world, a bias, that is going to be something that that, you know, anybody engaging in a propaganda war is going to be able to tap into. Without a doubt. That absolutely. That's totally different. That's a reality of the landscape. But I'm talking about actually are there multiple players cheating behind the systems? How widespread or how much content are they actually producing and creating? Like we're seeing that now, so we can get into that. But I'm just putting that at the top because it, it is a, it's really significant. What's the nature of the cheating? So uh, the biggest thing we've seen so far, which is sort of old school, is they're taking videos that are real, right? wildly disconnected from time and space. And they, I mean, both sides, but one example was a video that was posted by a recently created Twitter account that has a blue check. And it was from, it was actually from a movie. It looked, obviously, because it's a movie, so it's supposed to look real. And it looked like, it was, it was presented in such a way that it looked like, it was, it was portrayed that Israel was staging attacks on Israelis in order to blame members of Hamas. Millions of views from an unknown account with a blue check. That is an example of like manipulated media. It's not a deep fake, right? It's not synthetic. It's real. It was a real video, real short film. But how you frame it matters. And it is disproportionately happening on Twitter, but it's happening elsewhere. And a lot of policies and approaches that the platforms made around dealing with some of this content all changed. They rolled back a whole range of protections. Um, starting in the fall. And one of the things that they started to do is they roll back detection protections. Content is going to elicit a certain reaction from users, people that when it resonates with the bias or perspective you have already, especially if it's really visceral, you're going to engage with it, you're going to share it. Algorithms will privilege that. So they'll privilege high levels of engagement, even for really invalid content. Well, no one's pulling the levers here. It's all just about algorithms figuring out what is most likely to keep people on their platforms. Friction had been put into the systems to say, wait, algorithms have to start to account for things like time and place. Is the content taken out of date? I'm not even getting into the harder questions about where you draw the line, about what content you decide to allow on your platform. They just made simple things like, let's put some friction in. Let's not make it so easy for it to proliferate wide, far and wide. And so that we're in an environment now where a year ago, things would be a little bit slower um, because these the high prevalence of not just deep fakes, not, not, not just other literally just taking actual real clips of things people said and did or these short films and posting them at a time and place would have had more friction and one of the lead steers of that was twitter vanguard they would they changed it when they started changing their policies around this other platforms started to roll their policies back as well they just they did so we're not even getting into any of the more complicated stuff so when you ask me what we're seeing that and that has not been a fixture of misinformation and disinformation campaigns since for at least seven years. Like that would not be my go-to for previous instances around mass shootings, 
around COVID, that's not what we were seeing in other major instances of disinformation campaigns of like old school clips being the widely privileged things. We were seeing made up stuff. They were making things up a lot more than they were um, taking actual footage of things and putting it at a time and place. You mentioned before that one of these accounts had a blue check mark. Yes. And it seems like one of the biggest uh, changes to Twitter's platform is now anyone can just pay for that blue check mark. That's been the biggest thing that we've seen, by the way. So, like, so one instance, one of the disinformation campaigns that was already that was caught and coordinated, and it's I'm not saying who's doing more of this, but it was the first one that the first big one that got busted. It was from a bunch of pro Hamas accounts that had blue checks. You get a boost for your blue checks. Your content will show up in people's feeds more. Your responses to so if you have a blue check and you're going to respond to a, another piece an, another account's high trafficked tweet and high traffic post your post will always be seen at the top even amongst more authoritative users so these accounts that were created they were not old accounts by the way they didn't exist for seven months a year there's not long-standing accounts they all are born within the last week or two they just start up if you know what you're looking at and you can say, this is a brand new account, like, give me a break. But the fact is, most people, when their biases are being spoken to and when the emotions are running high, the last thing they're going to do is look to see if it's valid because, of course, it's valid. It agrees with what they think. You talk about hijacking emotions because a lot of this has yeah. to do with that, right? Yes. And that, that certainly happened in the past week. These yes. are real. This is real news. These are real events. This is real news. Yeah. And, you know, I know that news can be distorted based on if you're communicating with friends, how they feel, how you feel. You know, actually, Adam, we know the news is distorted by talking to friends because they often will say something and you're like, wait a minute, that's not exactly right. And then I'll just say, like, what, what are you what are you reading? And then they'll send me a Ben Shapiro video. Uh, <laughs> I'll be like, OK, <laughs> now I get it. Yeah. yeah. Bo, that's all true. But Angela, what are, what are the hot zones? Is it like the friction-free zone in X? Is it rumble? What is it? I think the two areas that are especially hot right now um, is, is X matters a lot. And it matters not because it's the biggest or most used social platform. Most most Americans are not using are not using X Twitter. They're just not. If this was Japan, it'd be very different. One out of every two Japanese adults uses uses Twitter. One out of every two? That seems high. It's like extremely important there. You can get full saturation of a false narrative fast. The reason why X matters is two really significant ways. One is that you still have a disproportionately large amount of media figures on there, journalists, right? People that, that, are, that are making decisions about how to approach an issue. And so that is a very much their lens through which they see the, the landscape. And journalists had relied very extensively on Twitter for sources, for feedback between peers, like, that was a very important part of informing their own media diet. And that is just, it's polluted now. So they've either lost it or that it's too easy to distort. So they're hyper-concerned about potential issues and risks there. And so they're just not using it at all uh, to help guide themselves. And then the second is that it gets it into the pipeline. So you're not going to saturate the landscape with something that spreads far and wide from Twitter. Just not um, directly. But what happens is like the example I gave you before of that video. So you get the video or you get a comment or, for example, you get these voice memos. So there's these voice memos of people from pretending to be inside. I'm inside Gaza. You would not believe it. You, I'm, I'm now in one of the zones. You do not believe what just happened with, with the Palestinians just did to us here. Like, they're voice memos. You can't verify it, right? 
they get spread on Twitter really fast because you have, you have all these like-minded individuals, networks that are taking that raw material, s- spreading it, then users that want that are engaging with it. But then it gets pulled off and it moves to WhatsApp or other peer-to-peer communication platforms. So Twitter sort of serves as a launch pad for the types of misinformation that then saturates. So that video before, it got a few million views on Twitter. That's really bad. It got like 10 times more views off of Twitter because somebody pulls it from Twitter, puts it on TikTok, puts it on YouTube, puts it on Rumble. YouTube eventually takes it down. Great. Because they oh, this violates our manipulated media policy. A few hundred thousand people see it. Fine. Rumble doesn't take it down. So now it's in the Rumble pipeline, which is an alternative to YouTube that has 80 million users. Um, it gets recommended to users, and it's not just conservatives now. It's on TikTok. So TikTok's very potent algorithm is serving it to potential like-minded individuals. So it's actually supercharging this misinformation. Uh, and then it makes its way through the Facebook rounds, which is old school kind of stuff at this point. And that's it. Those are the two vectors. I, so one is that. And then the other is, is I think X and its influence here should not be overstated. And then Rumble, I point to as a, a really important backstop here, but it's part of this like this umbrella concept of unchecked entities. And that is Rumble and that is WhatsApp. And they kind of go hand in hand because Rumble is like YouTube. The videos will host, like I said, YouTube will take stuff down or they'll slow it down. Rumble won't. So you'll get users sharing it and spreading it. And it, it will matter a lot. The RNC has made Rumble the exclusive partner for all of the Republican debates so that they're not letting the news outlets, any of the news outlets. So NBC has the next debate coming up. All of the online stuff has to be Rumble. NBC is not allowed to put it anywhere near their website. That means that a whole bunch of people are going to, who would never touch Rumble are going to be going to Rumble. And I don't think we should discount the significance that they're going to play, not just in the moment, but the long-term effect that they have of just putting poison into the system. One of the places that we haven't talked about where a lot of this information and media is amplified, especially on the right, and I know this because I'm friends with Pat, I'm not going to say his last name, but he listens to this show, and he and I have been friends since kindergarten. We have not agreed with each other since 1987. Um, so, <laughs> but I love him and we send each other things and he sends me things via text. And as long as a video or a piece of information is available yep. somewhere online, anywhere online, and it can be, no offense, Pat, the most garbage-like link on earth, that is that is another um place where this information is propagated and there's no controls there obviously because it's just the text so it's email email and text email and text yeah and that's why i put rumble and whatsapp in the same category because rumble provides a permanent link you'll know you're never going to get your thing taken down from rumble so it'll always sit there even if the other platforms decide that it's too far gone so that that that's important because it maintains that text part of it whatsapp is the other piece we obviously use a lot of of text messages WhatsApp is another text messaging tool, but globally, that's the big boy. That is the major text messaging application. Still, WhatsApp. It is the largest source of news and information for people in the UK under the age of 25. WhatsApp. It's just, that is their text message tool. Like that is just, there's, I can go country by country to point out how prevalent this is. And it is, you know, it's sending links or it's sending content itself, native content. You upload it and then on WhatsApp, you can forward like old school emails. Text is totally uncharted territory. It is. The peer-to-peer side of it remains the reality of the information landscape. To your point about text, you know, you know, one of the things that India grappled with, and I don't think they're a model for, for free speech or a whole range of policies, uh, 
But early on, when they were having real serious issues with, with, with engagement with their COVID health policies, WhatsApp was a cauldron of disinformation when it came to their COVID work. What India wanted was to, to, sit, to put a limit onto how much you can forward the same piece of content. You can't forward it past a certain amount in this point of time because the majority of what we're finding that's really that's really bad is spreading really fast. So limit it the way that you would limit spam. I mean, what you're talking about essentially is how do you fight a forest fire? You stop it where it started. And if you don't, you're kind of out of luck. When the, India did that, their misinformation around COVID fell by a little less than 80%. That one single piece of friction in the system had a massive impact on the proliferation of it. And that's and they didn't even ban it. They were just putting friction in. They just put a limit. So I guess that, to your point, that once it's peer-to-peer, -peer, it's fully peer-to-peer, -peer, there's very little you can do. Um, so early detection matters more than anything. Yeah. I think one of the biggest questions I have around this is who's actually benefiting from it? We'll talk about that after the break. Let's talk about weight loss. Most of us have been there, struggling with the ups and downs. You lose some weight, then it creeps back. But forget those endless cycles of juice cleanses, soup diets, and the latest fad workouts. There's a better way. The Rope Body Program pairs a weekly weight loss shot with a real lifestyle change so you can lose weight and actually keep it off. Need support? Rose got you covered every step of the way. And guess what? You can do it all from the comfort of your own home. No more doctor's appointments, no more waiting rooms. It's that simple. Ready to take charge of your weight? Head over to row.co slash Adam to sign up today. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in a year. That's with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.co slash Adam. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash A-D-A-M. This spring, get out there, enjoy the weather, and recapture the magic of riding a bike with electric e-bike. With an amazing variety of models built for riders of all abilities, it's never been easier to fall in love with riding again. Plus, every electric e-bike ships free and only requires quick, toolless assembly. This is my first ever e-bike, and the experience has just been great. I was a little bit intimidated at first because I hadn't gone biking in a while, but the 500-watt motor that the electric e-bike comes with really gives you a nice little boost, especially if you're trying to go uphill or pick up some speed. Data shows that e-bike riders take their bike out more often. That means you get more exercise, more exploration, and wait for it, fresh air. And riding an e-bike isn't like, it's not cheating. It's just making it possible for you to be out there longer on each ride. And speaking of things going a little slower, you can finance electric e-bike for as little as $49 a month. Get into spring with electric e-bikes, the number one selling e-bikes in the nation. Get your adventure started at electricebikes.com. And please mention that What the Hack with Adam Levin sent you in the post-checkout survey. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C-E-B-I-K-S dot com. I think we have to talk about propaganda here. When we're talking about misinformation and disinformation and Travis's question before the break of like, who's benefiting? I'm, I'm reminded of a 1974 film by Vim Vendors called Alice in the Cities. It's a great road film if you haven't seen it, but there was a line from it that really 
resonates for me here. He's watching an advertisement on TV. He kicks the TV over and he says, even, even the programming is a commercial. There's not one image that leaves you in peace. They all want something from you. And when I think about the way social media is working now, that's it. It wants something from me. I, it either wants me my time, my emotion, or my opinion. And it's going to try and get it out of me. And, and, and that's where we find ourselves. And it is very firmly a propaganda thing. Because at the end of the day, there are parties that benefit from me thinking one thing or another. How does that right now, what are you seeing at Media Matters with regard to the situation in the Middle East and misinformation specifically in that way? I think the thing that one of the things that reinforces that we're seeing that reinforces our observation is this. If you go back and look in the Washington Post, just did some reporting on this as well, that, that aligns. But up until this point, the majority of the most high traffic, high profile misinformation, disinformation we've seen, regardless of, of which thing they're arguing for, um, has been generated from the region. It's not being generated in the States or, uh, you know, or, or elsewhere. It's, gener- it's coming from the region. And one, that's obviously an important point to your point about propaganda because it's, it's serving some purpose. Obviously, some misinformation is designed to create confusion publicly. Some of it is designed to fuel these protests abroad, right? So you, and like they, they all have a different purpose. Like it's disruptive at, at the end of the day. Some of it is recruiting uh, or support, right? So it's not, it isn't that simple. Um, it's like the single beneficiary for it, but I think ultimately the fact that so much of it is originating from the region has two consequences or is, one is it, it's so much of it is propaganda or designed to be serve propaganda purposes. Um, the other is it is making it even harder for reporting to get done and for the verification to get done. And it, it has a layer of authenticity that is helping it smooth, move a lot faster. So that is to me different than it, than other stuff we've seen is like, even for other international work, like when we were dealing with and the wave of misinformation right after the first parts of the Ukraine war started that we were seeing, most of that stuff was generated here. Like the misinformation we were seeing was right wingers that were posting it to align with their agenda. That wasn't like, wasn't even like it was Russian misinformation. And I was originating like there. Like, no, it was like our people using it for political purposes to basically make the case that Biden was a warmonger and was somehow in on it in order to protect his son like it was all like it was all political misinformation right now it was propaganda still it was designed to serve their purpose but it was originating here it wasn't like some larger thing we saw other stuff but that was the bulk and that's not the case here and it is clear that it does serve a larger purpose it's designed to manipulate the media so a lot of the stuff we see on tiktok they just pop up a lot of this stuff has been designed to and and ultimately later debunked but it's too late after it spreads and that that to me is the, the biggest difference maker that we see. And I find very concerning about this. And the Post did a good write-up on this uh, yesterday or this morning that basically had found the same thing, that the majority of inform- misinformation that they've seen spread far and wide has originated from the region. How do you know that you're getting media that's designed to inform you about what's happening as opposed to telling you what to think? Look, I'm always sensitive to things that play too much on the emotions um or and that's the first thing the second is and i think the big tell is speculation so i think the second they talk about unverified reports or that they haven't been able to verify it that should be your big red flag so if you see unconfirmed which we've seen about a lot of photographs posting around you're saying wait 
I think that's an important part of this. I think a little bit of, I think that is, that would be the wise approach to this. And, and I think that it all gets back to your own other point about bias and feelings and coming into, you know, any event where you have a, a very heavy and preconceived feelings or opinions is like, you're going to look for things that reaffirm that, um, that feel true. And the threshold for engaging is a lot lower, especially given the initial shock. Uh, it's like, well, this is terrible. So things, everything else must be terrible. And, but yeah, there's a lot of that. There's, there's, I would say that it's more of an avoidance and less of a, this is definitely the go-to source. I think a lot of outlets are much more susceptible to it. I think papers are going to necessarily be better for information when it comes to this, because that gets into the other piece about what's authoritative. Their editorial process at least requires a different level of confirmation than, than anything that's, that's video related. TV still has, they have to fill airtime on TV and their standards are fundamentally going to be different. You know, when they talk about confirmed, I always wonder who's confirming it. Yes, and that's the other part, right? And we saw this a lot during the George Floyd protests as well, where, and we did a really big study on this at the time, which was, you know, how much of the newsrooms were uncritically parroting or quoting or citing police department press releases and statements without actually going and doing the reporting work to actually see whether or not that comported with the reality, um, especially in the wake of those protests. And a lot of what ended up being the case is there were police departments that were putting out things that they were later debunked about what the protests and demonstrators were doing. And that was one of the criticisms, especially of local newsrooms, that they were just parroting, not doing reporting work. What you just said typifies the situation, which is yeah. whether or not this or that photograph or video is real and authentic. What we do know is that something happened. And the thing that did happen is it beggars the imagination in terms of like what humanity is capable of. So, yes. you know, when, it, when we venture into people who are like, well, this could have happened, what matters here is we're in an information environment where emotions are are weighed more heavily than facts and 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 the media companies are to blame for that and there is not enough friction in the system i think our biggest thing is more early detection early warning where's this stuff starting from even just being able to know that this stuff is foreign origin versus being treated locally helps us figure out how much of a problem we're really dealing with and are these things going to be is this going to be sustained is this going to move on the next time Ben Shapiro says something? If this was being created by the Proud Boys, our interaction with the content would be really different because we know how long it would last. Um, that's just changes it. Early warning, early detection is an important part of the, the work. And then the second is identifying the friction points. And there's lots of places where there is friction, or it was. In this moment, I still think that Rumble is the big bad. Is there a design, or do we find ourselves in the mere chaos in the Musk era purchased privilege? Is it, it's designed to hit reporters in newsrooms. And to disorient them and, and to muddy their conversations so that they hedge or they say one thing another way so they get blowback. Like it is, it is designed to flood the zone. It is an actual strategy of propaganda and misinformation and is to flood the zone. And one of the things that we zeroed in on was we had looked at like the worst types of misinformation around the elections that we anticipated. And then we looked at overlaid that with focus groups to say, okay, what's the thing that's most likely to be believed? And it was ballot harvesting. And we went to newsrooms and said, if there's one thing that you're going to report on from your from social media that you should have a slightly higher level of scrutiny with before you report it it should be ballot harvesting you should apply a much higher standard to that 
getting newsrooms to agree to that editorial change, friction. So uh, what will happen as a result of this? Newsrooms are, do not have answers to how they're going to deal with this moment. They've now seen the vulnerability in a pretty intense way. They're not going to be positioned. If, if they replicated what happened here in the, in the lead up to the next election, it would be chaos. Newsrooms are going to want an, a policy and approach for how they deal with election misinformation. And that's what we're going to zero in on. That's the first thing. It's how they're going to, that puts some friction in the system. What's number two? The newsrooms have to beef up their policies a little bit. And the second is we, we have to definitely go back to the drawing board on this manipulated media policy because this, this shouldn't be as bad as it is. And a frictionless landscape is where we're living in that right now. Once the friction is created and once your message gets through to the newsrooms, mm. how do we help people understand that they shouldn't allow social media to overwhelm what the newsrooms are trying to say that's correct. How do we do that? How do we get to people? We're in this place because of almost a 30-year effort to undermine trust and confidence in the profession of news, of journalists. And I don't think journalists, no, there's plenty of moments where journalists didn't do themselves favors and the industry didn't do itself favors and all these economic changes makes it worse. Like I get all of that. But we shouldn't discount the fact that there was like a pretty coordinated, concerted effort to undermine trust in the profession. That it actually has a it has standards. You know, we assume we go to a dentist that the tools are clean and that they have rules. Like there's we we cross bridges because we assume somebody checked it to make sure it's not just going to collapse under our feet. Like we live in an environment where it's just a large degree we all just rely on professionals. Um, and for some reason we treat journalists not that way. Uh, that there's no skill or standard that they have to adhere to, and that is a change. And so I don't think that there's a way to do that overnight. I really don't. It is a, it's a cultural shift. You said this, you hinted at this, that the media has historically over the last 20 or 30 years also not done itself some favors along the way. Correct. And one of the things, the, 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 the biggest disservice that has happened to the media was where punditry and editorial replaced the news. Opinion replaced the news in every news channel. And I have friends at some of them. I'm sorry, they're all doing op-ed. All of them. Yeah. And that's why nobody trusts any of them. Yeah. And look, I, I'm, I'm obviously, I, live, I, I have a very, very bleak view of the world because I live in the fever swamps. So I, I don't want to come off here like an optimist, <laughs> um, but I try to take a long view on these things. And like, the thing to consider is this, when, when we wanted this always, you know, headlines, you know, when, when we had paper boys, the way news, the way news was made was by flashy, absurd headlines right? That then got attention because you'd have to sell the papers every day. That, that was the economic model. Outrage, yellow journalism, right? It got us in the war, for God's sakes. I mean, like, because that was the economic model. And then, you know, they used to have back then, they, caught, they had fake news. In fact, there was a whole movement in the late 1800s called fake news is fun news when there was a right. suggestion that they shouldn't <laughs> stop putting this stuff. That was, it was, this is not a brand new term, okay? Um, but then you had subscriptions. And the second newspapers didn't have to rely entirely on sensational headlines. You actually had a, a baseline economic model that then led to an, an, a profession reestablishing and reasserting a set of standards, right? That economic model is dead. Yeah, okay, we had, we had a bunch of like war, war companies basically that also ran newsrooms. And so their gift to America was to have lost leaders in the form of news and information because, again, they were part of the industrial military complex. So, like, so I'm not romanticizing it. I'm not criticizing it. It was a great thing to have big companies that are also willing to run a part of their division at a loss because they're making such fabulous other monies. I, I think that would be a good thing if we allowed for news to not be driven by commercial entities. Like, yes, that's ultimately going to be beneficial. But 
I just think that that context to me matters because we're basically in a moment right now where one, in response to Fox News, our journalists decided to try to inoculate themselves against criticism of bias by by actually engaging in bias, by privileging misinformation in hopes that the right wing wouldn't attack them. And it didn't work. They continued to do that. Um, we had our own trauma response to 9-11, which obviously intensified the misinformation landscape. And then you have an economic model right now that doesn't work. So we're back to the days of like frantic yellow journalism because they don't really know where the next paycheck is going to come from. And that until the economic model reestablishes itself, and I don't know what that's going to look like, um, there are options. There won't be any improvement in a meaningful way in the way that news actually gets produced in this country. And and so I'm optimistic in one way because we've gone through this before and it really the economic model does really make a difference. The answers aren't clear. Um, and I would just emphasize that what you see on TV is not necessarily the other newsrooms. Fox News doesn't have an international bureau. Right. CNN does. NBC does. Like now they don't get on TV very often, you know, um, and uh, but they produce reporting. Uh, that's not the broadcast version of it. And I, I think ultimately what we see on cable news is is not really news at this point. Very little of it. It is barely a facsimile of it. This isn't new, but we have no. tools that we can do battle with it now. Yellow journalism happened in a snail mail and telephone environment. Uh, we can be part of the solution. We can be the guardians of our information. What was that you used to say when you had Cyber Scout? The, someone's the best guardian of their what? That consumers are the ultimate guardians of their information. Right. So for identity theft. So this is, you know, I guess fake news, misinformation, disinformation is a different kind of identity theft. It's actually stealing your identity, you know, the way you look at the world. And that's messed up. It's like a scam pulled on society. Yeah. Right. I think you were getting at, which is really cool, is there should be citizen citizens. Right. And, and this is where it all comes full circle. The average American is thinking about politics and the things that adjacent to politics for about four minutes a week. Yeah. That doesn't mean that's the only way they get that information. Where do they get it from? Their social peers, either online or their friend groups, or their family members or in chats when they're dropping off their kids. Like, so there's a few, there's a, a very, very limited number of people that are actually evangelizing ideas and narratives. People aren't giving stats, they're giving impressions. And for most people, they're getting their impressions, just like word of mouth is still the most effective form of advertising. It's the same thing here. So when misinformation spreads to the center circle, the people that are consuming it, and then they go back out into the world and engage with their friends, their peers, they're dropping off kids, they're saying these things, all that stuff gets filtered through the rest of the ecosystem. So. Right. It is. It'd be great if everybody read the paper or in a, in a good paper. But the truth is, they're really only thinking about it for again, not four minutes a day, four minutes a week. So here's the deal: I use Yahoo Finance. I use it to make money because it works, not just because they're a sponsor of the show. Heck, I've been using them for years before they ever called to become a sponsor. I do a lot of investing, and I need to make split-second financial decisions, and that's where Yahoo Finance comes in. I trade stocks, and I trade options, and you can't trade them in a vacuum. You've got to know what's going on. Yahoo Finance gives you the opportunity to look at the whole picture. I mean, breaking news, editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts. I love the customizable charts. They have it all. 
At Yahoo Finance, I'm part of a community of over 90 million users. You heard me. 90 million folks use Yahoo Finance because they're helping you on your way to financial success. Visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com, yahoofinance.com. It sounds like at the end of the day, there are tools we can put into place to help, both in a personal place and an institutional place. And it sounds like that's just adding some more uh, friction, as you put it. You know, nobody really complains about Google search results, right? Which is like, you know, the, the worst stuff isn't appearing at the front page of Google. Google doesn't censor anything. You can find anything on Google. It's just they order the information well, reasonably well, because they have a mechanism for identifying authoritative versus not authoritative. And like, that's the fundamental issue with a lot of the social media algorithms is that they don't really, they're not pressured or pushed to include more authoritative rankings into what it is they choose to supercharge. The problem is with the algorithms, the algorithms are really designed to appeal to people's emotional responses. And the more emotional people get, the more interested they're going to be in things that appeal to those emotions. And that's the danger with a lot of this information is that it's designed to appeal to specific emotions that can get very dangerous. Anyway, Angela, we can't thank you enough for oh, joining us today. Your insights, as usual, are spot on. And again, if someone wants to find you, it would be mediamatters.org. That's right. Terrific. Everyone, Angelo Corazon, thank you so much. Thank you. Bo, I see you on Instagram all the time. Are you trying to tell me that you're actively not going on social media? Well, so here's the deal. I'm looking at some kind of bird uh, kicking dust onto some sort of animal that was sleeping peacefully in a ditch. And the caption is, really, bro? I, I do look at social media, but social media knows the only thing I want to see is animals, cute animals. Occasionally, it'll send me a not cute video about an animal killing another animal and then I don't like it and it, I'm trying to teach it that I don't like that content but in terms of real news I don't I really don't well the one animal that I prefer you not be anymore is an ostrich because there's too much going on in the news in the world today no well said because I mean that is part of you know Part of my strategy in staying sane in a, in a crazy news environment is appointment media consumption, which means to say, I don't just absorb news throughout the day via osmosis because it's happening to me on social media and on news, cable news, where it's essentially op-ed. I mean, yeah, this, some places are better than others, but they're all trying to get me to watch all day long. And I refuse. So I've been reading personally, and just full disclosure, the New York Times, like I know ECAD, Republicans will probably say it's not a good news source, but I happen to know people there and I know that their news standards are very, very stringent and I trust them. I read op-eds from both sides of the political spectrum and I'm done. And if I sound boring, thank you. One of the biggest bummers here is the fact that I did used to get news information from Twitter. Um, when January 6th happened, uh, that, that hit Twitter about a half hour before it hit the news. It used to actually be fairly reliable just to see what was going on. 
And uh, that's all gone now. Do you remember when someone piped up during Obama's State of the Union address where they said, you lied? That story was broken by Claire McCaskill. Right, but those days are gone. Those days are dead and gone. And Twitter, I mean, like, just the fact that Darth Vader's, you know, run to the litter son owns it now. Um, (laughs) I'm willing to wait 24 hours while a decent newsroom checks it out and makes sure it's true. So, guys, let's go on to our tinfoil swan. Our paranoid takeaway to keep you safe on and offline. The, this, the best topic I can think of, given the episode that we just finished, is how to have a good news diet. So, what do you got? So today, you and I were talking about 23andMe, because I know you happen to be a subscriber to 23andMe. And there was a story that I read, a few stories actually, that talked about hackers that were putting up information that involved Jewish subscribers to 23andMe. I know, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh please, Adam, that sounds like bullshit. And I went online, and the first link I found was a radio station. So I proceeded to tell Adam how wrong he was. As we were talking, I did hit the fifth or sixth link, the Washington Post, and he was right. I think one thing that Angelo brought up, which is a uh, good just rule of thumb, is check the age of the online account on social media. Well, remember we had Teresa Payton on the show, former CIO of the White House, and she said, whenever you see anything on the news, check three sources, a national, international, and local source, and just make sure they jibe with each other. Listen, the news is very important, and you should know what's going on, but you should know that the information you're getting is correct. Mm. And that requires a little more work in a world where, uh, what's that phrase you use? Instant gratification and crap. No, instant gratification isn't fast enough. And ultimately, if you're seeing anything on social media, especially if it's really shocking, be skeptical. Independently verify before you amplify. That sort of rhymes. Add some friction to your fiction. I like that one too. And that's our tinfoil swan. What the Hack with Adam Levin is a production of Loud Tree Media. You can find us online at adamlevin.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin.